0: you don't know who I am, my name is Nick Gerken. Um, I'm the offspring and son of Michelle and Tim Gerken, if you know them. I have my brother also in the front here. Um, and I am the intern here under Jeremy Anderson for the junior high group. Um, we have a lot of fun. They've given me the endearing name, just intern, that's all they call me. So if you ever hear them like chanting or screaming intern, that's, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about me. they're probably yelling at me for doing something. And uh, I've been given the opportunity this morning to, to open up the word of God and preach and to uh, study and see what God has for us and for this church. So if you would, could you open up to hebrews eleven twenty nine hebrews eleven twenty nine. Now, you're probably wondering why I got this uh, broomstick up here. It's not going to turn into a snake like Moses, and I'm not going to start swinging around or, like, javelin into the crowd, you know. If I see someone in the back sleeping, though, I might. Um, I had a professor at Moody that I really, really enjoyed because every time I went into the class, you never knew what was going to happen. He would always, like, have some strange illustrations, or he'd call out on students, Um, And I always enjoyed having his class and one of the things that he would always do is every time he wanted to make a point um, or we were learning something in scripture and a principle came up that went beyond the test, that went beyond the quiz and he wanted it to resonate in our life in that week or, or that year or for the rest of our life he would go and he would grab a chair and place it in the center of the stage and he would stand on it and get all of our attention And then he would give sort of his proclamation or the point. And it was something that he would do to help him remember. And so I'm sort of going to do the same method. I'm going to grab this stick every once in a while. I'm going to hold it up. When I believe that the text is saying something that our church needs to hear today. So every so often I might be grabbing it um, to grab your attention. So if you're opened up to Hebrews 11.29, let us read. It says, By faith... The people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. If you remember last week, John Culver uh, taught out of Hebrews, uh, or taught the verse right before, and the, he gave us the context of Hebrews of Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is is very unique in this way. Like the book of Hebrews was written to a group of persecuted Christians; they were being unjustly put in prison. They, they, were, they were experiencing all sorts of discouragement. And the author of Hebrews writes them as a way to encourage them, as a way to show them um, how to live this life of faith. And so he, he focuses on the, the first part of Hebrews. Um, he focuses on who Christ is. He's, he's the better Messiah or the better high priest and he's the better lawgiver. And then he moves into how we are to live This faith walk with endurance. We see in chapter 10, he addresses the issue. He says that you are in need of endurance and not to shrink back from this life of faith. Chapter 11, his solution to it is to go back into the Old Testament and pick out all of these people throughout the Old Testament that showed some sort of extraordinary faith in dire and sometimes impossible circumstances and difficult circumstances circumstances. And so the solution is to bring them out and he's using it as a form of inspiration, right? He's saying, if if they could do it, right? You see in chapter 12 at the very beginning, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, he's basically saying, if they can walk this life of faith, and they can do it in the circumstances, and the difficult circumstances that they're living in, then we also can walk in faith. We don't have to shrink back in persecution. We don't have to shrink back. Put your faith in God and watch Him do something. Watch Him do the rest. And so with that in mind, we read that we are going to speak on the crossing of the Red Sea, right? That classic... Sunday school story—that classic story where two amazing movies were were written and created. Uh, The Ten Commandments, and my generation had *The Prince of Egypt*. Um, And we often think about those movies. We think about what we know about it already. Um, But what I want you to do today is, I want you to take off your Sunday school cap. I want to take off what you what you believe you know about um, this portion of Scripture and lay it aside. Lay it aside. Because sometimes it it can be childish and we forget these little details that end up being very important. So with that, let's flip to Exodus 14 and see why the author of Hebrews decided to add the Israelites to a list of those commended for their faith. And also we will see three steps we must take to experience God's deliverance in difficult circumstances. So if you're there, I'm going to... Where we find the Israelites right now in Exodus 14, they had just left Egypt. They are now exiting, thus Exodus. And what has happened so far is that Moses had, had been told to go to Pharaoh and say, let the Hebrew people go so that they may go worship God. And so that they might bring them into the promised land. A promise that they've been waiting for all the way through Genesis into Exodus. And God's timing is now. And so God sends Moses and Pharaoh is is not having it. He's not letting the people go. So God sends plague after plague after plague after plague after Pharaoh as a form of judgment until Pharaoh would relent and let the people go. Eventually Pharaoh said, fine, get out of here. And the people left, and they were being led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, which that alone is just amazing. I wish God guided me in that way. Just be like, Nick, I want you to go over to that person because there's a pillar of fire above them. It'd be much easier. So that's where we find the Israelites. And so let's read, starting in, in verse 1, and we'll read through and we'll, we'll talk about this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Harath, between Migdal and the sea, and in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people of of Israel had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen, his armies, and then overtook them and camped at the sea by pi hi Harath, in front of Baal Zaphon. So what we see here is, is God is setting up the stage to do something. The Israelites don't know this. They just are following this pillar and following Moses. But God, behind the scenes, is setting up the stage to do something. And we see he does it by doing two things. One, he puts the Israelites in a vulnerable, vulnerable position, a vulnerable environment. And he The the area that they would have been in, where God led them to be, uh, basically it was like a beach, um, and behind them would have been these mountains, and would have had this trail snaking behind these mountains, as you see in this picture. right? So three million people would have been on that beach, and the only exit, the only real way out, would have been through that small passage you see in the back. And so God filters all these people into this area, and then says, I'm about to do something. And then secondly, he sends Pharaoh after them. And he's, he's putting the Israelites between a rock and a hard place. He's putting them between a rock and a hard place. And it wouldn't have been hard, I guess, for God to harden Pharaoh's heart to pursue them. As we know, Pharaoh regrets releasing them. And the reason why is I, th- I think, one, Pharaoh has been humiliated almost emasculated. We have Pharaoh, this guy who believes that he is God, that he, and he's reigning over the most powerful nation at the time. The most powerful and advanced nation at the time. And then suddenly, this guy comes up and says, let my people go. And he's like, no. And then God sends plague after plague after plague after him. And eventually, Pharaoh and his magicians and his servants, they couldn't keep up. And it kept on coming until Pharaoh would relent and until God proved that he was superior over even the most powerful king in the world. And he was humiliated. And then secondly, Pharaoh's like, we've let all of our servants go. All, about three million people had left Israel. All of those slaves, all of those people who were in the workforce were now gone. Could you imagine what that had done to the economy in, uh, in Egypt at the time? Could you imagine just the chaos that the nation would have been going through because of all the people that were working are now gone. And now it's just, just Egypt. And then also while the, Egypt, the Israelites were leaving, it says that they plundered, Scripture says they plundered Egypt. Because when they were leaving, they kept on asking the Egyptians, like, hey, can I take some silver and some gold while I'm going? And can I borrow this? And can I take some livestock? And the Egyptians were so, like, adamant about getting the Israelites out. They were like, here, take it. Please leave because if you stay, we might die. Your God might keep on sending plagues down. So please just leave. And so Pharaoh, I imagine, is just infuriated. And he is out to show his power to the Israelites and to get glory over the Israelites. But God has a different plan. His plan is he is going to get glory over Pharaoh. And what God is doing is he's setting the stage. And for the Israelites, what he's doing is he's breaking down everything that they could possibly put their faith in that's not him. He takes away their security. He takes away their their position and environment. He takes away a good circumstance. And he entraps them in the wilderness. They're they're easy target, easy prey. Because God is knocking down everything that they're going to put their faith in because he is about to do something. So let's read on from 10 from verse 10 on and read how the Israelites are going to respond. It says this when Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel, lifted up their eyes and behold the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, And they said to Moses, Is this because there are no graves in Egypt that you have brought us out into the wilderness to die? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. So when the circumstances going awry and the Israelites realize what is going on, they, they see the position they're in, they see the armies and, and they, they lift up their eyes and they start doing the right thing, right? It says that they cried out to the Lord. And we do the same thing. In, the, in our life, our circumstances, things might be going awry. And the first thing we do is we're like, God, please save me from this. I can't do this anymore. It has to be you. But very quickly, just like the Israelites, that, that plea for help turns into complaining and turns into regret and turns into fear and anxiety and despair And then it turns into blaming other people. God puts us in these circumstances, and we don't know why. Things seem to be going great. Life is great. Everything is going good at work. And then suddenly, like half your coworkers don't show up to work, and everything is going crazy. And you, you, the first thing you want to do is complain to somebody else. You complain to your other coworkers. You regret even coming into work. You regret doing this job. I hate this job. I wish I would have gone to my old job. You start blaming other people for the place that you're in. And so many of us today do the exact same thing. And I think we also need to look at Moses' proclamation that he gives the Israelites, and maybe we could learn a thing or two from the Israelites. Moses says this, his remedy for their fear and anxiety, his, the remedy for the circumstance that they're in and the panic that they're drowning in is a change in attitude and a change in attention. A change in attitude and a change in attention. He says, be silent instead of the complaining. He says, fear not instead of the despair and fearing the worse. He says, stand firm instead of regretting and wishing to go back. The Israelites were like, "Egypt was better than this circumstance. We're going to die here and being enslaved is better than dying." Stand firm where God has placed you. And then lastly, look and see the salvation of the Lord instead of looking to other people and blaming them for the problem. Church got my stick. Church, I think we can say with confidence that our circumstances, when they turn sour, is not evidence that God is angry, is not evidence that he's punishing us or that he's absent, but rather it is evidence that God is working, that he is active, and that he is working in the background. Church, what would our life look like if we started to look at our life differently like Moses wants us to look at our life? What if instead, when circumstances seem to be going wrong, when everything seems to be going wrong, we're like, you know what? Instead of complaining, regretting, despairing, and blaming other people, I'm going to wait and see how this plays out. Things are going wrong, God must be on the move. Church, let's start living with that attitude. And trust me, God. This entire week had been doing that with me. He was like nailing me with all these problems, and I was like, "I just gotta preach my own outline to myself this week. I just gotta." I was like, "God, you're teaching me, so I can teach others." So, like the Israelites, let's move our focus. Let's let's adjust and identify the object of our faith in God instead of our circumstances that we're in. And so with that, with the attention of the Israelites on God, they were ready to trust God's provision and witness an amazing feat of power and majesty. So let's pick it up in verse 15 through 31. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians, so they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and I, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before them, moved behind them in the pillar of a cloud, and it stood behind them, coming between the host of the Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without anyone coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind all the night, and he made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen. And and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptians into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, the waters returning and covering the chariots and the horsemen, all a host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, waters being a wall on them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant. That was a big chunk of scripture. So this is where we see the faith of the Israelites, right? This is where we see the faith of the the Israelites. The Egyptians are behind them. There's this wall of fire and this pillar and cloud behind them, and in front of them is this there's these walls of water and salvation where there was wasn't salvation before. And so if we are to experience God's deliverance in difficult circumstances just like the Israelites, we need to trust in God's provision. We need to trust in God's provision. The Israelites put their faith in God's ability to save them and to walk through the Red Sea. Now, the walking part's not the hard part. Like, they, it didn't say that the, the, their faith was commended because they figured out how to walk. Their faith was commended because of the circumstance, because of God's provision and how terrifying it would have been. We're not just talking about, like, this isn't so, no, like a small task. We're not talking about some puddle of water that they're going to walk through in fear of getting wet or some creek that they're trying to jump over. This is... A sea, a wall of water on both sides. The place where scholars believe the Israelites crossed the Red Sea would have been about 11 miles long. 11 miles of walking between two walls of water. That 11 miles would be about the same distance between this campus and the Aurora campus and then back. So if you walked to the Aurora campus and then walked back here, that's about the same distance. Or if you drive over to 47, get out of your car and walk all the way to the bridge in Yorkville, all the way down 47. That is the distance that we're talking about. The distance where they had to walk in fear and in trembling before the Lord. The, the depths of the sea would have been about 830 meters deep. We're talking seven football fields high of water piled up on either side of them and 11 miles to walk can you imagine the fear and the terror of the Israelites as they're walking through like this is God's provision and at any moment hundreds of gallons of thousands and thousands of gallons of water could come down and crush if this God decides to give up on me does that not put it into perspective the faith the Israelites needed to have to walk into the midst of the sea. And there was nothing that the Israelites did to deserve this. They dropped the ball earlier. They had no confidence in God. They were complaining and blaming his servant. At this point, there was no ritual sacrifice. There was no works involved. There was nothing that put them in favor with God. There was nothing that they could say, God, I did this, so you need to be faithful on your side of the bargain and lift up the sea for us. No, it was just God lifting up the sea and by faith, they trusted that that was enough. That God would be enough. This is the faith that they, show, that they had shown. And believe it or not, we actually show a very similar faith um, every day. Most of us here didn't drive on the way to church. We had somebody else drive. And when you get in the car or you get in the plane to go somewhere, you are putting your faith in their abilities to drive and get to the destination. And you are subject to their decision. That can be terrifying. I know a lot of you on the way home are going to be like, watch the road. Don't you dare be looking around. I'm putting my life in your hands. Right? And that's a small illustration of the faith that we show today. But believe it or not, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, that in itself is an illustration and a foreshadowing of the, the salvation that we receive here today, right? We are, we are stuck, stick, we are stuck between a rock and a hard place. We have our sin on one side and we have God's just judgment upon us on the other side and there's no escape, Romans said that the wages of sin is death and that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And we all find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, God gives us a deliverer. And he does it in the strangest way. He sends a little boy down. He sends Jesus Christ to grow up into a man and to die on a cross. To die to give us life. And then he spent three days in the grave and then rose from the grave and it says that he tramples sin and death. When Jesus died on the cross, when he's at Calvary and he has his arms stretched wide, the veil split. And now we have access not only to freedom, not only to forgiveness, but the very presence of God, a relationship with him and all he asks of us is to believe that his, his deliverance is enough, to believe that God's death on the cross is sufficient, and then to repent, which means to turn away and walk away from the sin. Believe and repent, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Is that not a, just an amazing parallel that you see in Scripture? And church, if God is able to be faithful and handle not only the salvation and deliverance of the Israelites, by crossing the Red Sea, by by literally doing something so unusual and so unnatural to cross the Red Sea, is he not able to deliver us in our circumstances? In the small things of this world, when things seem to be going awry, if he's able to do that and handle our salvation, he can handle our circumstances. And maybe the way that God delivers us is not what we expect. And God does this often. He puts us in, in a circumstance and the deliverance seems obvious to us. I mean, the Israelites were probably thinking, just strike them dead, God. Just strike the Israelites dead or strike the Egyptians dead. But God did it in a way that was so unusual, so unorthodox. And the reason why is so that He can get the glory. And sometimes God isn't the way out, but is the way through. Sometimes God doesn't deliver us by splitting the Red Sea and giving us escape. Rather, he gives us the strength and the perseverance to get through that trial. James, the book of James, talks uh, huge portions on this, that that if we live by faith, right? uh, It says... Consider it great joy when you go through trials of many kind, for this is the testing of your faith, and it will produce in you perseverance. So it's unexpected. Sometimes we don't know what God is doing. The how God delivers us may seem odd, and even the result, where we end up, might seem different and odd. And he does it for his glory, because God loves, he absolutely loves to deliver his people in unique and unorthodox and in very strange ways. You don't have to look very far into Exodus. You actually have to go three chapters more and you see God do it three more times. Right? The, the Israelites are in the, are in the desert and they're, they have no food with them and instead of just like, like, okay fine, go out and hunt, God literally sends manna from heaven to fall from heaven and says, here you go. Every day I'm going to send manna from heaven and all you've got to do is go and eat what you need to do. Don't collect the rest because tomorrow I'm going to send some more. Bread from heaven. I wish God would do that for me. I love bread. He also gives them water. When they have no water, they're wandering in the distance and the people start complaining and they're like, we're going to die of thirst out here. And God says, hey, Moses, go and talk to that rock and out of it will come living waters. A rock. You want me to go talk to an inanimate object that will produce water? What? That doesn't even make sense. And then Moses goes and talks to, the rock, talks to the rock and out comes living water. Later on, we see that Moses strikes the rock and out comes living water. Later on, uh, they face the Amalekites and they're an unmilitary, like they're unready, they have no military training. And God says, Moses, what I want you to do Is go over a cliff and watch the battle as they're ensuing, and like just lift up your staff, lift it above your head, and as long as it's above your head, I will give you victory. If you put it down, you'll lose. But if you keep it above your head, I'll give you victory. What? What? (laughs) Like he didn't like give him some like combat training or any sort of preparation. He's like, no, I'm gonna do it in such a way that I'm gonna get the glory from it. And that's why God does it. God saves us in such miraculous ways because he wants the glory. He doesn't want anyone else to think that it was the Egyptians that saved them. He doesn't want to think that the Israelites somehow saved themselves. He doesn't want them to think... He doesn't even want the people to think that there was, this is a natural phenomenon, that like you could just walk across the Red Sea because, I don't know, someone built a bridge over it. No, he's like, I'm going to build two balls around you and I'm going to have you go through and then I'm going to crush the, the Egyptians when they go through. Why? Because I am going to get glory from it. That is why God does it. And glory is a big theme in this chapter. So look with with me. Let's go back to the the chapter. We're going to jump through and see this. In verse 4 it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. You bump down to uh, verse 17, he does it again. I will harden the heart of the Egyptians and they shall go in into the sea after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now jump to, to verse 23. It says this, the Egyptians pursued and went into the sea in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. And in the morning watch, the pillar of fire looked down and cloud looked down at the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." The very same thing that that Moses proclaimed to the Israelites, God will fight for you, is the very same thing that came out of the mouth of even the Egyptians. The Lord is fighting for them. It wasn't the the, the Israelites they were scared of. They said, let's flee from the Israelites because the Lord is fighting for them. Church, the Lord is fighting for us and our circumstances that he has put into place. He is ready to fight for us. And he will receive the glory from it. We see it not only came from the mouth of the Egyptians, but later on, uh, in the, if you look at chapter 15 with me, look at verse 14, it says this, the people... Have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall on them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone after the Israelites had crossed the sea, right, and they look back and they're like, they're thinking about what the circumstance that they were in, the fact that they were in a hard place, God's deliverance, and they look back and they praise and worship God. And in that praise and worship, it says that not only did the Israelites get to see the glory, the Egyptians get to see the glory, but the rest of the world got to see the glory of God. And they got to know who the Lord is. And we know this is true because later on we're going to talk about Rahab, right? The Israelites are coming and, the, and uh, the spies meet Rahab and they're like, oh yeah, we know who your God is. We heard about what he did at the Red Sea and how he saved you. And the entire city of Jericho is shaking. They are terrified of your Lord. Not because the Israelites are coming, but because the Lord is coming with them and he fights for his people. I think there's two things we can learn from this. One, first off, when God does the work of delivering his people, the world will know his name. God doesn't just put us in our circumstances and then provide deliverance out, not just so we would worship him, so, but so that the world will know who he is. It is a testament and a witness to the power of God the world will know who he is. And secondly, we need to give God the glory. If we are to live, if we are to experience God's deliverance the same way the Israelites experience God's deliverance in our difficult and sometimes impossible circumstances, we need to give God the glory. If you've ever heard of um, George Mueller, he's a, um, an evangelist and he opened up orphanages in England in the 1800s. And he had this amazing faith, like an unbelievable faith. I remember reading it years ago and I was just in awe of his faith. And there's story after story about it. And one of the stories is um, he woke up early in the morning and he was running an orphanage and there was hundreds of children. And one of the maids came and said, hey, we have no food. We have no food. We can't feed these children and we have no money to even go out and buy food. And George Mueller could have complained, could have regretted taking this job, could have bemumbled, started blaming, I don't know, the orphans waking up late in the night and going stealing food. He He could have done that. But instead, he lived his life in faith. And he said, bring in the children, set them at the table, and he says, children, you can't be late for school today, so let's pray and let's eat. With nothing on the table, said, let's pray and eat. He said, Father, thank you for everything that you have already provided us. And thank you for what you will provide for us to eat. And when he said, amen, there was a knock at the door. This is a true story. There's a knock at the door. He opens the door and it was the local baker. And he said, I don't know what it is, but last night God gave me a dream. And he said, he wanted me to make bread for you for today. So I've got all this bread that I was making all night And he said to give it to you. Do you need bread? And he was like, yep. Closes the door, starts handing out the bread. Another knock at the door, opens the door. It's the milkman. He says, hey, uh, my carriage broke down in front of your orphanage and it's going to be too late by the time to fix it to deliver all the milk. It's going to spoil. So do you need some milk? This is a true story. This is a true story of God's provision. George Mueller was quoted saying this faith does not operate in the realm of, possible, of the possible. There is no glory for God in what man, there's no glory for God in which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. George Mueller was a man that lived his life of faith and he gave it all to God. He gave him the glory at the end of it. And tonight, or today, we're celebrating baptism. Which is when we look back, right? We look back and we celebrate what God has done in the lives of those being baptized. In the circumstances, the providence and deliverance, and we give him the glory. And we are obedient to him by being baptized. And so church, I want to encourage you to do this. In whatever circumstance you may find yourself in, or may later find yourself in, in, Identify God as the object of your faith, turning your attitude and your attention to Him instead of whatever you feel like doing. Turn your attention to Him and watch Him provide. And then trust in that provision, no matter how strange it may seem. Trust in God's provision. And when all is said and done, and God has delivered, give God the glory. Because it wasn't just circumstance, it wasn't happenstance, it wasn't luck, or that things just worked itself out. God is the one that delivered you. Because he works all things together for those who love him.